Hello, all you positive heads out there. Thanks for tuning your beautiful brainwaves into another episode of the Positive Head Podcast, where we are firmly convinced that creating success and happiness is rooted in understanding the ultimate nature of reality and the fact that as human beings, we are all immensely powerful fractals of the one and only source consciousness, which creates and animates all things. Now, of course, understanding this powerful truth is one thing. Applying this incredibly empowering wisdom to everyday life, well, that's another. Which is exactly why we provide you with a fresh serving of soul food for thought five days a week to help constantly remind you of what matters most. You are it. And I'm your host, Brandon Beecham. I'm the reflection and extension of you who will be here each Wednesday interviewing a different consciousness changemaker and on the other four weekdays, leading the way to ensure that your perspective is consistently expanded, your vibration is constantly elevated, and your heart is overflowing and full. Also, this episode of the Positive Head Podcast is being brought to you thanks to the support of Gaia. If you're not familiar, Gaia is the go-to source for streaming consciousness content online, and you can sign up for your first month for only 99 cents at gaia.com forward slash positive head. That's spelled G-A-I-A dot com forward slash positive head. Check it out. All right, all you positive heads, on this week's interview episode, I'm extremely excited to have the one and only Dennis McKenna here with me on the show. Dennis is a renowned researcher, lecturer, and author who is focused on the study of psychedelics and plant medicines for almost 50 years. Hey there, Dennis. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you, Brandon. It's a pleasure to be here. Ah, such a pleasure to have you. I've been looking forward to this one for quite some time. Uh, so many juicy things to pick your brain about. But before I dive in and and start that whole rabbit hole, uh, before we delve down that rabbit hole, I'd like to uh, ask you, uh, start off with the same question I always start off with. Uh, you're in an elevator. Uh, the guy next to you looks over, says, what's your passion? You have 10 floors to answer. What do you say? Uh, I think you said, I would say psychedelics and the exploration of consciousness. And and we have nine stores, uh, nine, nine, nine stores left. left to go. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, that's fine. That, you know what? Almost everyone has nine stories left. It's just, uh, I don't know why I came up with 10 at some point. I should say one, well, I, right? I could go on, but in, in yeah. a nutshell... Between floor uh, one and three, I can say that, you know, psychedelics <laughs> right, right. and consciousness. And just generally, I guess what I'm, what I'm passionate about as a person is, uh, uh, you know, a, a passion about understanding the world and, and being right. curious. And I think that's why, among many other reasons, that's why I went into science because, you know, science uh, – pursued properly, pursued in the real spirit uh, that it should be pursued, is the perfect thing for curious people. It's a way of asking questions of nature and getting answers back that kind of make sense, you know, and that you can actually verify to an extent. So it's a powerful tool for that. That said, when it comes to something like psychedelics, you know, psychedelics will will throw into your face the limitations of science and limitations of knowledge in general, or what it is to know, because it 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 forces you to confront a realm of experience that 
you know, cannot be glibly explained or explained away. You know, people right. have these experiences and they don't know what to make of them, you know, right. and, and which is fine. That doesn't devalue them and it doesn't mean they're stupid. It means that these are complex experiences and they're out of the ordinary and that's, that's why we're fascinated by them. But that, that's why they present this conundrum. You know, if you want to know them, then you have to kind of uh, make some assumptions, you know, uh, uh, among which are that certain aspects of it just may be beyond human understanding. You know, you can have an experience of a phenomenon without necessarily understanding what is causing it, you know. So, psychedelics are... Are that right? Yeah, they they definitely are. Some of the most powerful experiences I've had in my own journey have been with the use of psychedelics and and how. I mean, yeah, and it's such a unique, uh, you know, you know, uh, experience for someone to have as well. I mean, it's never the exact same for any two people, right? And so, uh, to to be on the path that you've been on for almost fifty years, and and you know, it's it's quite fascinating to me um, to you know just the things that you've experienced and seen. I mean, I you know, how much can I can I get out of you in our time together here? Because I know there's so much, and for those that aren't aware. Uh, you know, of course, uh, your brother uh, being uh, the, the, you know, very well-known Terrence McKenna, um, proponent of psychedelics. And, uh, you know, you guys wrote books together and very close brotherly connection, uh, which is which is really fascinating. One seemed sort of like the, the scientist and one more like the artist, I, I guess some might would say. And uh, so maybe you can give a little for those because there are probably a lot of listeners, many of who know who you are and, te- you know, about Terrence and all those things, but probably quite a few of our listeners that don't. So maybe you can give us the, the you know, little little bit of a background story if you would on yourself well sure uh i can do that and and um you know we didn't plan it this way but you just opened the the door to let me plug something else which is my book which is called (laughs) the brotherhood of the screaming abyss my life with terence mckenna i i wrote that in 2012 and it's kind of a memoir. It's been well received, and it's it's out there. You can get it on Amazon, or you can get it off the website of the same name, Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. I'll send you a signed copy if you order it from there. But a lot of what uh, motivated me to write the book was, uh, you know, Terrence was he passed on in two thousand. And I wrote the book in 2011, and it came out in 2012. And I felt that enough time had passed and that I needed to tell my story because he was very good at telling his story. And right. they overlap and they intertwine, but I never really, uh, in a public way, went out and told, okay, this is my perspective on what happened and who we are and on our life, you know, so the book was very important for me to write, to get that out there. It was satisfying. It was not easy to write, um, but it was well-received, and, and you know, uh, there was an existing fan base. I mean, Terrence was much better known than I am, 
And uh, so when I decided to write it, I did a Kickstarter campaign that was very successful. So essentially it bought me a year and a half of free time so I could write the book and, and pay for its How publication. Wonderful. And it's been, uh, it's been quite an experience ever since because it's gotten me, uh, you know, for one thing, I get invited places and I get invited to go on podcasts and it's opened some doors. It's much better than a business card in that respect. And, right, uh, right. you know, and then people read it and they have so many people resonate with the things that happened. I mean, in some ways, I was just, we were children of the 60s and we went through all that turbulent era and we, you know, we protested against the war. My brother was in the streets in Berkeley and in, you know, 1968, I was on the streets of Boulder, uh, you know, during the war at the same time. Um, so there was that whole era of political turmoil. But for us, it, you know, psychedelics were part of this mix. But psychedelics seemed to us in some ways to be more relevant to our lives than, than the political situation, which, you know, we'd pretty much given up on politics. Right, being right. able to do anything viable, kind of like this era, you know. I mean, I don't think anybody's looking to the the idiots of the country, you know, as far as getting anything accomplished. or uh, So you have to look for something different, something closer to home. And psychedelics seemed real to us in, in the sense that it was something that nobody could explain away. And, it, and, and one of the interesting sort of uh, characteristics of psychedelics is you can talk endlessly about them. You can talk endlessly about the experiences, you know, but sooner or later, if it's going to mean anything, you have to have the experience and, and nobody can have it for you. You know, it's, right. it's like it's one of those things in life where nobody can have, you know, sex for you, for example, or right. nobody, you know, there are no substitutes. People for probably tried. <laughs> you know, so uh, psychedelics are one of those things that is quintessentially a, 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 an encounter between you and the individual and the psychedelic, however you want to think of that, as a medicine, as a teacher, as a plant teacher, as an intelligent entity or whatever. Um, but the thing is, it's up to you to have the experience or you, an individual, to have it. And you're free to make of it what you will. You know, And, and, and there will be plenty of people who will be happy to tell you what it's supposed to mean, what you should have experienced, you know, what's wrong with you because you didn't experience right. that, you know, but ultimately it's up to you. You know, I mean, no one's psychedelic experience is any more or less valid than anybody else's. And right. I think that's part of its appeal. You know, it's an individual thing that must be experienced. And that right. makes it kind of unique in today's world when we seek all sorts of stimuli and entertainment and so on. Um, you know, uh, but many people, I mean, many people seek those things, but psychedelics is 
you know, are the real deal. I mean, they're not distractions. They, if you do them properly, you know, the, 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 the best way to encounter psychedelics is to pay attention, you know, hmm. because right. they have a lot to, to tell us. Uh, or, or one way of putting it is that, or they, we, have a, we can learn a lot from these experiences. Uh, sure. And it touches on kind of the deepest uh, emotional, spiritual experiences that people can have, uh, you know. And so, uh, and I think in our, in our culture today, there's a certain longing for genuine experiences, especially genuinely rewarding spiritual experiences, because they're hard to come by. You know, I mean, religions don't, by and large, uh, serve that up anymore. Maybe they did at one time, but now, I mean, they almost forbid you to have a genuine spiritual experience. You know, right, that's not right. what organized religions are about. Organized religions are just institutions that basically want you to behave a certain way. So they're no different than any other authoritarian structure. Psychedelics right. are the anti-religion in a certain For sense sure. because they don't have to happen in an institutional context. It's better if they don't. I mean, there are churches that use psychedelics. They've adopted it in, but originally the psychedelics were a one-on-one -on -one kind of thing. And if there was a practice or a structure around their use, it, it was shamanism. You know, and shamanism is not is kind of like a religion, but in in some ways, it's the uh, it's the precursor of religion, right? You know, and and I think it was developed in in a sort of very practical sense as, as a tool for helping people navigate the psychedelic experience and and these realms of other dimensions and so on. You got to have a map. You have to have a you know, you have to if if you're going to travel in these areas, you need you need certain amount of techniques to uh, keep your ship upright and and find your way back home. That's that's the other thing. When the trip is over, <laughs> right? You want to get back to a safe harbor, um, you know, which we laughingly call consensus reality. But right. Right, you know, which some people speculate is just a, a DMT trip in itself. <laughs> Probably is, in a way it is, yes. <laughs> right, right, right. So, um, so one thing that I would like to get a little context for, for everyone, so as you mentioned, you know, back in the 60s, really, um, starting down this road, and you went to the Amazon um uh, you know, a big part of your early research and experimentation was actually in Colombia with your brother. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And maybe you can share a little bit, uh, you know, uh, about what went on down there. I, I know I had read uh, some things uh, that I'll ask you about in a minute that you had talked about down there, but just kind of curious what your, you know, what what your overall take of that uh, that whole experience is and how, how it actually shifted, you know, what what's led to who you are today. Right. Sure. Um, I can talk about it. Um 
in fact, again, referring back to books, I would say to really understand why we went to South America in 1971, you have to read not only my book, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, but you have to read True Hallucinations, which my brother wrote. And in some ways, that is a their required reading, in some ways, that's a prequel to my book in a certain way, in mm-hmm. that True Loose Nations does not focus on our whole lives. It doesn't cover our lives as mine does. It just focuses on that, those few months in 1971 when we went down there and all hell broke loose, uh, basically, to put it, to, to put it bluntly. Um, you characterize our trip down there as research. Um, we certainly thought of it as research at the time. We thought of ourselves as scientists at the time. We were fairly serious about it. Uh, we had no idea what we were getting into, you know, and this was not, if we had a research agenda, it quickly got slept, swept away. If we were, if we thought of ourselves as scientists, we were very quickly disabused of that notion, you know. Um, right, right. We, you know, we we I, we had a specific agenda to go in going to South America, which was that, you know, in Berkeley in the sixties uh, and so on. We. Uh, kinds of uh, psychedelic, or there were psychedelics around, maybe I shouldn't say so many kinds, there weren't so many kinds, but one of the ones that occasionally crossed, uh, you know, came onto the radar screen was DMT, and Mm -hmm. DMT was fascinating to us, you know, to Terrence and I, we thought this was more than just a drug, we thought this was the most profound uh, thing we'd ever encounter, not just drugs. I mean, we were we were sampling drugs, but this was seemed an order of magnitude different in terms of its profundity, its significance, its bizarreness. It's you know, it seemed like a true mystery, you know, and we didn't right. know what kind of a mystery, but we felt sure it was a mystery, uh, and we were you know. I mean, a lot of people these days, they come to psychedelics through a, a spiritual tradition. Maybe they practiced Eastern uh, Eastern uh, religious practices and so on, and maybe found them not entirely satisfying. So then they, they go to psychedelics. We were not, we didn't really come to this from a, a, seek, uh, a, 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 a quest for spiritual enlightenment. We were actually gotcha. steeped in science fiction at the time. That was right. those were the influences that made Terry and I just weird and nerds. I guess <laughs> would be the modern right. term. We thought DMT was a portal to another dimension, and that those right, entities right. you encounter really were out there. <laughs> and uh, but the thing is, we uh, the thing about DMT, anyone who's taken it will tell you, it's totally overwhelming, it's completely awesome and amazing, and it's too short. It only lasts about <laughs> 15 or 20 minutes. And you right. can't come back with from that experience with very much other than just an impression 
that you just had the most amazing experience of your life. But beyond that, you can't say a whole lot. It's like, you know, you don't have enough time to really spend in, in that dimension, if that's what it was. So we had heard about this orally active form of DMT derived from Varola, one of the one of the trees uh, in South America that's used to make snuffs. Uh, and the mm-hmm. sap of Varola is very high in DMT and other tryptamines, and they make snuffs out of it, and so their effects are very short, like smoking DMT. But there were a couple of tribes that had oral preparations that they made from from this plant. And in our sort of naive approach to it, we thought, well, if it's oral, maybe it'll last longer and maybe we can spend more time in it So, and learn right. more about what's really going on. And so uh, that was the, you know, sort of very naive assumption that, that led us to take off for South America, drop out of school in 1971, go down there in search of this drug, which we called the mystery. And, <laughs> and the people that had it, they called it ukuhe. That was the Witoto uh, word for it, and it was the Witotos that, that had this drug. So we found a paper by Ari Schultes uh, that was called, actually, Varola as an orally administered hallucinogen. And he's the, he's the ethnobotanist that's really the father of, of psychedelic ethnobotany. So we stumbled on this paper and we read it and we thought, aha, this, this is worth going after. Maybe this is the secret that we're looking for. And so we went, so, you know, again, here we are. Um, you know, I was twenty. Going a lot further, going a lot further than the average guy goes to get some good stuff. <laughs> that's, that's true. That's true because yeah, we took it seriously, uh, uh, and uh, we, uh, you know, we just felt that again with a sort of disillusionment with the social situation, the war, political dysfunction, societal dysfunction. We thought, you know, we need something that is really revolutionary that's really going to change everything and uh right and so we decided to go after this after this exotic drug and we you know we uh i mean i guess that's an example we were very much about we're scientists we're we're serious about this we're you know uh but when we actually went through what it takes to get to La Chirera, which was no easy thing in those days, and then when we got to La Chirera, what we encountered there was not Ukuhe, which took a while to track down because that was a, like a secret of the shamans. What, but when we went to La Chirera, why, why did we go to La Chirera? Maybe I should back up and explain that. We went to La Chirera because that was the ancestral home of the Witoto people. There was no, mm-hmm. and it just, see, that's what the paper was written about, and so that's why we ended up going to La Chirera. When we Makes went sense. to La Chirera, uh, which was a little capuchin mission village at, at, on the banks of this river, the, uh, the uh, Igara Paraná, 
a tributary of the Putumayo, which is a river that separates Colombia on the north and Peru on the south. So we had to go up this river and then across land four days and then to find this village. And when we got to this place, uh, it turned out that they had cleared the forest for about 200 acres all around. They'd cut down the forest and they brought cattle in there, these humpback Cebu cattle. And the the dung of those cattle happens to be the preferred um, substrate for Psilocybe cubensis, the, the pan-tropical psilocybin mushroom. Well, so we, we got there, and, and basically these mushrooms were pretty much everywhere, like growing big clusters out of every cow pie in the pasture. And, uh, you know, we knew what they were. We'd done our homework. We did not realize, it took us a while to realize that they were really the real mystery, not the Uku, which turned out to be kind of disappointing when we finally found it. But we'd gone there to look for the perfect orally active form of DMT, and it turns out psilocybin is actually uh, the perfect orally active form of DMT. DMT and psilocin, the active principle of psilocybin, psilocybin has converted to psilocin in the body, and it's very, very close molecularly to to DMT. It's just different enough that it's orally active. And so when we got to La Chirera, these mushrooms were everywhere, and we you know, we knew what they were, but we didn't realize. It took a while uh, for us to realize that they were really the mystery. At, at the time, we we said, well, this is great. We approached them in a recreational manner, and we thought, well, we can nibble on these while, you know, we're waiting for the real mystery to show up. It quickly demonstrated to us that they were the real mystery, <laughs> and, um, and they had a lot of information to give to us. And now, are they uh, different than the psilocybin mushrooms that uh, people would typically find here in the States? Uh, no, nope. the same they... one. Okay, okay. In fact, that's one of the things. If, if the, you know, if our trip to La Chirera had any real lasting impact, it was that we brought spores back with us from La Chirera and we spent a couple of years figuring out how to grow these critters because we wanted to share these experiences with other people or we wanted confirmation, I guess you could say, of all the absolutely crazy things that had happened to us in South America at La Chirera when we started eating way too many of these mushrooms and sort of getting <laughs> sucked into their reality. And we wanted to... Uh, we wanted to bring the mushrooms out so that we could, uh, you know, get them out to other people, so they could confirm wow. or not that either confirm that there really is something there to explore, or that we were completely nuts. And as it turns right. out, no, we weren't completely nuts. And uh, you know that is, you know. I mean, a number of things came out of La Chirero. We wrote books about it. Terence came back with this idea about the time wave, time wave zero, 
but the most lasting and impactful thing uh, from the trip to La Chirera was this very simple technique for growing the mushrooms that we developed over uh, within a couple of years after coming back from La Chirera. So suddenly, you know, any reasonably intelligent tenth grader could, you know, buy the materials to grow the mushrooms and if he had the spores or she had the spores you know set up a little operation in in the basement and and get going and that happened uh, all over the the world so in some ways that that had an impact in i think in in more than any other single thing it brought kind of into mass consciousness the idea of psychedelics and uh you know in a positive way and uh that's a powerful thing that's a really powerful thing considering you know uh, having interacted with a lot of people who've taken psychedelics and you know it seems like mushrooms are probably at the top of the list i would say in my own encounters when i talk to people and they say you know i had this first experience and it was with mushrooms and i've never been the same since in a good way it seems like that one is such a a, a bridge to, for people uh you know yeah, like I mean, I said, that's just my own sort of experience i i think i think your experience is uh, is shared by a lot of people because they're they're strong psychedelic you know but they're not they really are they're not threatening in a way, I mean, they're they're kind of easy, at least at first. I mean, as we found out at La Chirera, they initially seem friendly, and then if you if you keep eating them, it can get very serious, you know. But mm-hmm. uh, initially, they're very they're non toxic. They don't upset your stomach usually. They're kind of giggly and and altogether very pleasant, you know. And and people find a you know that's a way to kind of gently penetrate into um, those dimensions and and many people um, you know who like mushrooms will take low doses they take it as a, a social thing maybe they take a couple grams at most and and go to a party or you know spend time with their right. friends and that's fine often they don't suspect that if they push the dose just a little bit higher there are realms of <laughs> bizarrety and strangeness that they, uh, you know, that they may not suspect. Uh, it's, right. it's full of surprises and it's full of information. This is the interesting thing. It's full of information. All right. Well, now seems like a good time to tell those of you who aren't familiar a bit about our sponsor, Gaia. I've been a big fan of Gaia for many years now, which is why they're the only content provider I have ever reached out to in regards to potentially supporting the Positive Head podcast. So needless to say, I'm very excited they're now supporting the show. Gaia truly is my personal go-to source for streaming consciousness content on the web. They have an incredible 7,000 plus exclusive videos covering 5,000 years of wisdom. They have a plethora of amazing content to always keep your positive head spinning. For example, in the brand new series, Beyond the Legend, best-selling author of Chariot of the Gods, Eric Von Doniken, takes us beyond the myths and legends that have shaped our view of history to present an alternate view of historical events, megalithic structures, and archaeological discoveries. 
Eric's been researching this stuff for over 50 years. So if you've ever wanted to deep dive into these sorts of topics uh, that you're just not going to find on traditional networks, Eric is doing just that on Beyond the Legend. And that's just one example of fascinating content you can find on Gaia. As you all hear me constantly say, it's a daily conscious effort to maintain an elevated vibration. And if you're looking to go deep down the rabbit hole to do so, Gaia is the best place I know of to do it, period. And you can sign up for your first month for only 99 cents at Gaia.com forward slash positive head. That's spelled G-A-I-A dot com forward slash positive head. Check it out. Well, I saw I saw an article, uh, and it was you had written, and they were they were quoting you talking about during your experience there, building you know tapping into some of this information and having an experience of uh, what you felt like was building a hyperdimensional vehicle out of the four D transformation of my own DNA interlaced with the DNA of a mushroom. I mean, that's quite the statement. That's right. That's right. And we'll just leave it there, okay? <laughs> because, <laughs> oh, man! You know, it's, so hard, it's so hard to explain it. And, you know, um, that's why you have to buy the book. Because yeah. both of these books, True Hallucinations and Brotherhood, examine this in, a, in great detail. And, and in the second book, I, I spent about three chapters trying to unpack what was going on and what did all this mean if anything and uh you know and what are the implications of it and so it's worth it uh for that reason for people to to uh you know to read the book uh because you know i mean for terrence and i we were i was 20 when we went to south america he was 24 None of us knew anything about anything, and both of us, as young men in their 20s often do, think they knew everything. You know, we were right. pretty convinced we knew a great deal. One of the first lessons, and I think one of the ongoing lessons of, of uh, psychedelics, of mushrooms, and especially ayahuasca, is that it will remind you, uh, not always gently, but it will remind you, remember how little you know. Be cognizant of the limitations of your knowledge. And I think that's a good uh, lesson for an individual. I think it's a good lesson for our species, in fact. You know, our species can be very ignorant, very arrogant about what we think we know. And, you know, our science is so impressive and all this. But at the end of the day, as ayahuasca sometimes say, I guess I can say this in a podcast, they say, you don't know shit. Right. You know? And never forget right. that you don't know shit. You yeah. know? And that's... We're babes in the woods, really. But I think it's, um, it's useful to acknowledge that because if you, say, if you say, you're right, I really don't know anything for certain about very much of anything other than kind of the basic, you know, Cartesian datum of existence. I think, therefore, I am. Beyond that, it's all up for grabs. But I feel like right. that clears the decks for learning. You know, if you assume that you know nothing, 
then you have a lot to learn. And and I don't look at it as a uh, it's not a depressing thing. It's a it's actually a challenging thing. It makes things interesting. The more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Uh, I'm fond of saying that's right. Yeah. Now, Terrence talked about, you know, his experience down there, and I always found it fascinating uh, concept, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on it, where he talked about the mushroom, you know, uh, sort of asserting itself as an extraterrestrial uh, seeking a symbiotic relationship with humankind. And I thought that, I've always thought, you know, ever since I originally heard that, it's such a fascinating concept, and uh, I'm curious what your your thoughts are on that on that concept. Oh. Here's the thing. My thoughts, my feelings about this have evolved over time. When we were at La Chirera, uh, it it definitely seemed to present itself that way, whether it was the mushrooms themselves that were intelligent and, and giving us information, or they were a channel for something else that was transmitting information to them, through them, to us. And we very much bought into that model that there was an intelligence either within the mushrooms or behind the mushrooms that were giving us all this information. And, uh, you know, for a long time, I mean, I think, uh, you know, that persisted beyond uh, beyond La Chirera. I mean, for many years, Terrence, you know, uh, I think thought of himself as being a an ambassador for uh, an extraterrestrial uh, intelligence, which either, you know, had come across interstellar space as a mushroom or had somehow, you know, gotten into the mushrooms from some other source. I mean, he really believed it. And I, and I sort of believed it, you know, but I was inherently more skeptical than he was. But, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, if you, you know, if people spend a lot of time taking mushrooms and if they, if they screw up their courage and they do it in a way where you're not taking light doses, you know, you're taking the requisite Terrence McKenna five dried grams, you know, challenge, if you will. And if you, mm-hmm. do that, and if you do it in the dark and you do it by yourself and you pay attention if you pay attention, you'll be convinced that, you know, they've landed. I mean, it is very, very uh, peculiar, and it has a very science fictionist cast to it. Uh, Most people don't go there, you know, and and they keep it at a lighter dose level. And uh, I I don't say there's anything wrong with that, but I say that they may not. Different experience. Uh, they may not suspect that, you know, just around the corner, just a gram or two more, and they, they would find it very surprising. Uh, and, uh, you know, so it is, you know, and, and then you, so, you know, <clears throat> it renders accessible this realm of experience, which is like nothing else you've ever experienced. You don't. It does not seem to be hard on the body. It's not an ordeal to take them. Uh, so it's very clean. You know, as a psychedelic, it's it's not toxic. It's not dangerous in any way. That way, it's it's if it it's really not dangerous, except that it takes a certain right. amount of courage to have the experiences. And 
uh, you know, I guess the danger is that, um, well, it gives you funny ideas, and funny ideas are inherently dangerous, you know, usually. <laughs> right. Not to the person. I mean, they can be, but to, you know, I, I guess the, the main, control system uh, and culture, it can yeah. be a threat, and it's yeah. been perceived as that, right? Yeah, I mean, there it it makes you have unconventional ideas, and that's why they've always been suppressed because, you know, uh, the way our society is organized, religions, institutions, and so on. There, I mean, people. There are a lot of people who have uh, you know sort of. Uh, appointed themselves as being uh, authorized to tell you what you're supposed to think, you know, about right. whatever. Psychedelics challenge challenge that. And there'll be people that can that want to tell you what to think about psychedelics, but you don't have to believe them because you can see for yourself. That's the beauty of it. It doesn't require faith. In fact, it only requires courage you know you don't have to accept a set of dogmas or anything you can just find out for yourself and you can make uh, make of it what you will and I think that's one of the the beautiful things about psychedelics for each person it's unique and it's different right right now you do uh you're doing uh, leading retreats down to South America these days ayahuasca retreats is that correct yes that's right which you know, I've had the experience. Well, not doing them out of out of country, uh, not in South America, but I've I've done some myself, and certainly profound, profound experiences. What what is your sort of you know two cents on that? What why ayahuasca uh, versus say the mushroom, or you know, in the case of the person that I've done them with, um, they actually, uh, and I don't know if you've heard of this, they actually merge the two. That's one of the options of you can take just straight. Uh, ayahuasca, you know, uh, with this with this particular, um, you know, person that leads the the journeys, and um, or they have an option of a of a chocolate that is uh, ayahuasca and mushrooms mixed. So curious as to what your thoughts are on mixing the two, and of course a little bit about uh, your your retreats and and okay, well, what, what you're doing uh, there. So. Uh, yeah, lately, I mean, mushrooms were my, you know, my earliest teachers. I didn't get into ayahuasca until somewhat later in life. Mm -hmm. Actually, when I went back mm -hmm. to South America in 1981, my, my graduate work, my field work was mostly focused on ayahuasca and also on ukuhe, this, this orally active form of DMT, but, um, the bulk of my work and what actually got published and got attention was on ayahuasca and it's a different kind of medicine but but it's also a form of DMT you know right. it's an orally active form of DMT that's activated with monoamine oxidase inhibitors so the phenomenology of what you might call the tryptamine dimension if you want to Think of it that way, and, and actually, it's a useful metaphor, even if it's right. not literally true. But but DMT, psilocybin, and ayahuasca at high doses will put you in pretty much that same place, very similar place. High, and right. it's the tripping dimension. And uh, so it's just a question of how you want to come to it. And ayahuasca 
um, has for me lately become what I primarily, what I think of as my primary teacher. Uh, and mushrooms, right. you know, I don't disrespect them uh, at all, and I take them occasionally. But but ayahuasca, I do pretty regularly, and I do it partly because I do do these retreats, and it's a medicine you can take fairly fairly regularly. Um, right. As and and I, well, so that's just my personal approach to it. Um, as far as mixing uh, mushrooms and uh, ayahuasca, or mushroom and ayahuasca and any drug, really, uh, even cannabis, uh, um, it's they say ayahuasca is a jealous mistress, right? Um, I think that all of these are sacred medicines and all of them uh, should be accorded or afforded their own space. You know, they shouldn't right. be mixed. Not because there's anything pharmacologically wrong with that, although there can be. And when you're talking about MAO inhibitors, mixing in MAO inhibitors, for example, you should not take it with MDMA. You know, that's potentially very risky. You shouldn't take it with uh, SSRIs. And, you know, we tell people they have to, they have to discontinue SSRIs if they, if they want to take it because there can be an interaction. But Between them and what? In what? I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. MDMA and SSRIs. Ayahuasca, the monoamine oxidase uh, inhibitors in uh, the ayahuasca. And things like gotcha. MDMA, which are like, um, in some gotcha. ways, they're like amphetamines. You know, they have that kind of an activity. So they shouldn't be mixed. Right. Um, but the reason I say, so there are pharmacological reasons, you know. I mean, right. in the case of mushrooms and ayahuasca, it doesn't really apply, or it can. I mean, I think mushrooms are orally active. They don't need an MAO inhibitor to be orally active. If you're not getting a strong enough uh, you know, response, just up the dose. Uh, right. But people, but it's, you know, I, I, I do believe that each medicine deserves its, its own space. And when you, if you're going to take ayahuasca, respect it enough to make that what you're doing. If you're going to take mushrooms, respect them enough to pay attention to what they have to tell you. You know, but that said, I mean, that's that's my preference. That's what I... Yep. Uh, that's what I tell people. It's a very reasonable... To, yeah. It's a reasonable but I'm not out there to wag my finger and tell people what they should do. I mean, that... Uh, uh, right. They'll find out soon enough. You know? You've done too many psychedelics for that, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to and the, know the psychedelics <laughs> themselves will make it clear after a while. Right. You know, so it's okay. I mean, if we were to, you know, discourage uh, experimentation with plants, it, it, this has been going on for who knows how long, half a million years or longer. I mean, we never would have gotten yep. anywhere. So it's far be it for me to say, no, no, you must not mix this with that or do these things, you know, um, because nobody really knows. Shamanism is essentially yeah. an experimental activity. And then the one thing I right. would say is, if you're going to do that, if you want to be an experimental ethnopharmacologist, you might call it, then know what you're doing. Inform yourself 
ahead of time use resources like arrowwood.org, another great organization that I always love to mention, E-R-O-W-I-D, you probably know it, mm. arrowwood.org. Um, best online resources about drugs of all sorts. Uh, but you can read up there on all these things. And if you're going to do, if you're going to approach this experimentally, first of all, do your homework, you know, as you would with anything you're approaching so that you, you're informed about it. And then with that knowledge base, you can <clears throat> go out and, and experiment. But you know what the pitfalls are, and what not to do, and, and so on. Right. Well, okay, so uh, one thing that I'm interested in and, and to mention to the listeners, you also have uh, a research institute that you founded, the Hefter Research Institute, which basically is looking at – it's a nonprofit uh, concerned with the investigation of um, you know potential therape- uh, therapeutic uses of psychedelic medicines. Uh, I'm curious what you have going on there. First off, what a wonderful thing that you're doing with that. I had uh, Rick Doblin on not too long ago with maps i'm sure you're familiar right. with him and you know same thing it's just such a such a wonderful wonderful area and so much to be learned and you know just taking a quick look at your site uh you know and, and doing a little bit of research it looks like you're seeing some promise for using mushrooms for cancer is that yes correct? yes well um yeah so hefter Hefter.org, H-E-F-T-E-R.org. Uh, we're, we were founded about the same time as MAPS, and we're very similar to MAPS, except that MAPS right. is just better. It's bigger in terms of fundraising, publicity, doing all those things. And uh, uh, so it's much more well-known. And Hefter is kind of, you know, uh, the nerdy one that sits by the side and never gets asked to dance, you know. <laughs> so it's, it's like that. But uh, we do a lot of good work, and we, uh, you know, there was no plan to divide it this way. But the way it's turned out, uh, MAPS is focused on MDMA, and they're doing right. Very close to legalization, they, they think, right, they in, all, the, in, in the next few years. They are going to get it approved as a prescription medicine. So, hats off to them. Wonderful. Uh, yeah, it's is wonderful. Wonderful. Focused on psilocybin, more or less, in the in similar things. I mean, we've we've just we've been working with psilocybin. They work on MDMA. Nobody says you can't work on this or that, but that's just the way it's worked. Right. And we've been doing very interesting work with psilocybin in a number of different. Um, different areas and I'm a founding board member of Hefter I was there the day that we that we formed it at the Mount Baldy Zen Center outside LA Uh, so I'm an old timer with Hefter I'm not unfortunately I'm not the researcher that's the researchers I should say that are leading the charge now with psilocybin it's mainly um, Roland Griffith's group at Johns Hopkins uh, uh, Steve Ross's group at New York University, Charlie Grobe at UCLA, and a few other affiliated people affiliated. There's uh, uh, Peter, um, gosh, I, this is terrible, I can't remember, uh, Mike Bogan shoots, and 
another gentleman working at the University of Alabama with uh, psilocybin mm-hmm. and cocaine addiction. So these people, this is our model. You know, all of these people are established academics with track records, full tenure, uh, you know, respectable academic scientists, you know, which I'm not really, and I never really even wanted to be, but they are. And so you have to have a certain amount of uh, uh, gravitas, I guess is the term, in order to pull this off in a, in a straight scientific right. environment. And they have managed to do it. And the government is not for is not funding this research, and they're unlikely to fund this research for quite a while because they still are afraid of it, basically, and they can't right. wrap their heads right. around the idea that, well, how can a drug of abuse actually be any good for anything? Right. Well, you know, that's a that's a failure to define it correctly, but. Um, um, uh, you know, uh, but but I, so so I'm involved with Hefter, but I'm almost I I'm a spokesman, but I'm not um, gotcha. Not really leading the charge on the research right now. Younger, better, gotcha. more competent people are doing that now. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Well, uh, they couldn't have anyone better to uh, be a spokesman from from what I can tell. So, you know, uh, wonderful, wonderful uh, for me to see, and I know others, this kind of stuff where it's being taken as it's given being given its due. Right, um, you know, in a very serious manner with you, with Hefter, with Maps. You know, you've got. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with um, uh, uh, the the work being done with Iboga. Uh, Martin, yes. I had Martin Polenko and Dean Dan Engel, Dan Adamson on all a while back talking about. You know, it's just absolutely incredible. You know what they're doing with heroin. People who have heroin addictions. One one yep. dosage of Iboga, and you know, it's like rewiring their brain, and they're sort of fixed. It's like it's a Fascinating. Well, it's not that simple, but yeah, it shows. Well, yeah, maybe that's a little oversimplification. Great promise. But. It grows shows great promise right. for for opiate addiction, especially in other kinds of addictions. That's right, and potentially, yeah. you know, I think all of these things. I mean, here's the trick: they have the potential to revolutionize medicine and psychiatry, very much so. Because these things can actually affect cures, you know, and, you know, psychopharmacology or, or psychiatric medicine, which over relies on psychopharmacology, psychopharmaceuticals, which are basically by and large not very effective, you know, but that's the pharmacopoeia and there's no... Um, you know, it's so hard to buck that because you've got big pharma, you've got big medicine, yep. you've got big government, you've got all these things that are very much interested in it. making sure that things don't change, you know, because yep. they are in positions of power and they – so psychedelics are a threat to all of these institutions in a way because they're – in the first place, there's no way to make money off of them, as there is with a sure. regular pharmaceutical. I mean, things you take once or twice a lifetime, no profit there. Right. Uh, right. It insists they, in, in order to use them effectively, you have to 
you know, you have to acknowledge that there is a spiritual component to healing, and uh, right. medicine doesn't, they're uncomfortable with that, you know, uh, and they're still working on this mechanistic model that, well, we're just complex machines, and if you apply right. the right molecular monkey wrench, uh, it'll all be fine. It doesn't work that right. way. So, right. uh, you know, for these things to get accepted into mainstream medicine, it's going to happen slowly and it's going to happen probably through the back door, you know, in a certain way, like yeah. like MDMA and the PTSD thing. You know, MDMA yeah. is by far the most effective treatment, pharmacological treatment anyway, that we have for, for PTSD because right. PTSD is so prevalent and so many veterans have it and and just living in our society is a traumatic experience. So there's a desperate need for an effective medicine. So, you know. It's such a heart opener. You yeah, know, the it, it does. It's such a heart okay, opener. Okay, nothing else works. Maybe we'll let you guys try this thing. You know, maybe it'll work, but they don't like the idea that it will work, but that's right. how it happens. And, and psilocybin, similarly, I think psilocybin is going to find its way into mainstream medicine, probably uh, initially through using uh, using it in in terminal patients, you know, helping people right. come to terms with um, their impending their impending death and help them to you know to face that in a way that is uh, you know that takes the fear and the anxiety away. I mean, I mean, medicine does not do death well right and yet sooner or later we all have to confront that and so i think psilocybin is a tool that would enable medicine to develop protocols for dying if you want to think of it that way yeah there's nothing inherently strange or wrong or bad about the idea of having a beautiful death we would all like to have a beautiful death it's a beautiful idea to me have to have a death (laughs) and you know so far, nobody has gotten out of this thing alive, so we better, right? You know, yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. Is there any psychedelics out there that n- no one really maybe knows about, or you know, uh, research chemicals, or in- anything that y- you're you're finding or know of that that you're finding super interesting? Uh, yeah. Um I mean, you know, there is the whole area of research chemicals, and there's the work that Alexander Shulgin did with made essentially hundreds of uh, uh, phenethylamines, similar, you know, relatives of MDMA, made hundreds mm-hmm. of tryptamines. Uh, you know, he's a very talented chemist, uh, and those are out there to be explored. You know, and and no one person could possibly sample them all unless you. I mean unless you didn't do anything else. They're out right. As an ethnopharmacologist, I, 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 my orientation is toward plants. And yep. uh, there are some actually very interesting plants, and believe it or not, some barely known psychedelic plants. That's what, that's what I that's was going to ask you. That's what this conference yeah. was about. The, the ESPD-50 was really, a lot of it was, it was looking so much at the mainstream the ones everyone knows ah. about, although that said, we had presentations on ayahuasca, we had presentations on peyote, uh, but 
kind of some of the lesser known aspects of those things. And then we have presentations on um, really the frontiers, you know, finding plants mm. that have uh, traditions of use, maybe unknown chemistry. That's always exciting if you're oriented toward chemistry, finding new compounds. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, and that's what that's what this conference was about to look at. Those, maybe yeah, maybe tell us a little bit about the, Yeah, yeah. Maybe now would be a good time to tell us a little bit about tell the listeners a little bit about um, ESPD and and ESPD okay. fifty. Yeah, well, ESPD or ESPD stands for the Ethnopharmacologic Search for Psychoactive Drugs, and. Uh, it's both personally meaningful to me and and professionally uh, because the Ethnopharmacologic Search for Psychoactive Drugs was a conference in, that was held in San Francisco, of all places, in 1967, sponsored by the National Institutes of Mental Health. So it was a U.S. government-sponsored conference. It was private, closed to the public. And they never, and the only thing the taxpayer who underwrote this ever got from it was this volume called the Ethnopharmacologic Search for Psychoactive Drugs, which was published by the U.S. government printing office. Originally, the idea was to have follow-up conferences about every 10 years to keep up with developments in the field. Well, between 1967, the war on drugs came along, the government became embarrassed that they had anything to do with this, and that never happened. And so, mm. uh, uh, you know, on, on the personal level, I, I encountered the volume when it was first published. I don't know how it fell into my hands, but uh, in 1967 or 68, I got my hands on this volume, read it cover to cover, and then I realized, hey, I can make a career out of this. I mean, maybe this is what I should be doing. So it was influential right. in that sense. And for many years, I've wanted to essentially organize a, another symposium to commemorate the first one and also to look back at all the work that's been done since then. So I wanted to do it on the 30th anniversary, but it didn't come together. So 2017 wow. was the 50th anniversary, and we managed to to pull it off. So we had it at this amazing venue in in the UK uh, called Tyringham Hall, and uh, we had about 18 people come. We were able to get some donations uh, to support it, and then also uh, we were pre-selling the book. We're we're going to bring the book out, which will be a this box set, the volume one from the first conference, which is free, it's in the public domain, that is, and then the second volume from this 2017 conference. So people are pre-ordering that book, and that's what's giving us the the resources to go ahead and print it and so on. So if they want want to order it, we highly encourage them. It will be a collector's item. You know, and you can get it from ESP50.com. Now, I realize... Is it ESP or ESPD50? ESPD50.com. Okay. Okay. Ethnopharmacologic Search for Psychoactive Drugs. Now, I realize that there is a certain demographic here among younger folks who may not even have a very clear idea of what a book is. 
Uh, <laughs> but for them, we're going to bring out an ebook that will come out about the same time as the printed book. They can buy that off the web, and then that book is linked into a whole bunch of stuff on the web, and including the original talks, uh, you know, which have been videoed and edited and so on. So the ebook cool. will be the the interactive portal into it. The the printed book will Gosh. be something that you, know, you can read if you happen to like dead trees and, and reading that way. It will certainly look elegant. <laughs> I was going to say live trees. It's funny. I was going to say if you like sitting under a live tree and reading <laughs> both, Sit right? Sit under a live tree and read the dead trees. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, anyone out there who wants to hear what's on the cutting edge of, you know, um, so they would basically get some insight into those things that I was just asking about. Super interesting uh, plants that are out there that are lesser known and things that, uh, you know, and people it's, are it's looking not, towards. It's not exclusively about psychedelics either. I mean, we talk about, okay. Ebola, for example, we talk about Kratom, Kratom, Kratom. Ah, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. We have uh, we have a uh, uh, one of our presenters, a guy named Dale Millard, uh, who is like the naturalist. Naturalist. He's a self-taught guy. He knows a tremendous amount. But just before the conference, he was in Mozambique for a month exploring. Almost didn't make it out alive. It was apparently a rough trip, you know, for various reasons. But in that expedition, he stumbled on a plant that nobody knew was a psychedelic, was that it was being used by a group there. And he is uh, is going to talk about that. Uh, so cool. there are discoveries to be made, you know. Another significant one that, that people may already be aware of is salvia divinorum. Um, this wasn't even on yeah. the radar when the first uh, conference was held. And Salvia Divinorum is interesting for a number of reasons, uh, you know, uh, not the least of which it's, it's not a true psychedelic. It is a kappa opiate uh, agonist. There are three kinds of opiate receptors, and this one mm -hmm. hits only the kappa receptors. And amazingly, it hits only that receptor, which is like, uh, this is unheard of in a drug. Most drugs don't have that kind of selectivity for, for their receptors. They are a lot of, they're dirty drugs. The term is dirty drugs. They overlap like, <clears throat> you know, LSD will hit, of course, most of the serotonin receptors, but also, you know, dopamine receptors, adrenergic receptors. I mean, it's, it's a... You know, it's not that selective a drug. Um, right. And salvinorin A, which is this terpene that they've isolated from salvia divinorum, is remarkable because it hits only the kappa opiate receptor, and it hits it very hard. It, it's uh, the it's comparable to LSD in potency at that receptor. Yeah, salvia is very powerful. Nitrogen, which is another interesting thing about it. Most psychoactive drugs are are alkaloids or alkaloid-like substances, so they contain nitrogen. This is a terpene. It does not contain nitrogen, and yet it's uh, it's kick-ass. Um, and it's not legal. Yeah. It's not illegal in a lot of places. Uh, 
Right. You can buy it at a head shop. You can buy it at a head shop. And I think it's become not a big drug abuse problem because for most people, (laughs) once is enough. Uh, Yes, it's intense. Right. It's not very easy to relate to. It's not, uh, I mean, there are some people that really like it. My own impression was this is just too weird, even for me, you know, and and it is very very strange. (laughs) Right, 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 right. Well, okay, so I have a big question for you. Is there or isn't there going to be a movie about your brother with Jim Carrey playing your brother? You know, I don't know if you just saw his red carpet interview. uh, You know, it's within a week of us talking here now as we record. And a lot of people are like, what was he doing? He was acting so bizarre and, you know, talking, you know, definitely, definitely on uh, a level that the average person is probably very confused by, you know. Uh, And someone just said to me just before I told them I was going to be talking to you today and they're like, and, and we brought up this movie thing that's sort of like a rumor and curious to hear if it's really happening or if you know uh, or not. But they said, hmm, I wonder if he was just, uh, you know, in role playing Terrence on the red carpet. That was like method acting sort of thing, how you see them do sometimes. I thought, oh, that is a great point. I wonder if he is. I'm going to ask Dennis this. So. Well, here's, here's what I know, um, which, is, which is not to say that it might not have changed, but... But here's what I know. I talked to Peter Bergman, who is the the guy who put these video uh, things about Terrence out on YouTube, uh, True Hallucinations and the Transcendental Object at the End of Time. He produced both of those. Uh, they are not movies as such. They're, they're documentaries. Essentially, they're clips right. of, of Terrence talking. So I wrote to him when I... People kept asking me about this Jim Carrey thing, and he said, no, so sorry, this was a rumor that got out of control, and there is no plans for Jim Carrey to uh, make uh, to play Terrence in any movie, um, as far yeah. as he knows, and he was the originator. But you know how memes are. They have a. They can take a life of, of their own. Maybe somebody. Yeah, I mean, will- I saw a movie poster. I saw a movie poster. Someone photoshopped up, and you know, Jim got has the beard like Terrence, and no, no, it's like, he, he, could, if, he could play a great. He should do it. Terrence. He should yeah. do it. Uh, well, but <laughs> you know, I mean, it depends on what are you going to do exactly. Uh, you know, the thinking was that he. You know, that there would be a movie made out of True Hallucinations, you know. Well, Jim Carrey is much too old to play Terrence at age 24. That's true. I mean, That's and, a good point. <laughs> you know, so it, it couldn't be that. It'd have to be some younger, edgier point. actor more in the, in the time frame. I, uh, I don't think it's going to happen. And I think it's a rumor that got loose and... As rumors go, I mean, the people that are that are into this are only too happy to let it let it go, you know. And who knows? But yeah. My information yeah, is well, that it's not going to happen. Yeah. 
Yeah, Sorry. that makes sense. And it, you know, yeah, yeah. Well, you <laughs> you kind of burst my bubble. Say with the age thing, I'm like, oh yeah, that wouldn't make good sense, would it? But uh, who knows? Maybe that'll be a spark for a future movie down the road. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. It would be a great. It would be a great one. There, someone be playing Dennis down in Columbia uh, in 1971. You know. <laughs> well, we we talked about this for years, hoping that somebody would want to option the movie and make the movie. Uh, yeah. But so far, uh, no one has has done that. So. Yeah. So who knows? And and maybe it doesn't. You know, maybe it doesn't really matter. Right. The, the Time shall tell. Is, that's for sure. Is is inculcated into the culture anyway. So, uh, yeah. yeah, you know, it's. Uh, I mean, it's well. Let's see. Nineteen seventy one. That was more than fifty years ago. No, wait. Sorry. No, that would that would be like forty. Research, it was not quite fifty years ago. Forty six. Nineteen sixty seven is when the first ESPD was published. So here we are. Right. Right, right. A long time. You know, and oh, sorry. You know, another thing that I I wanted to throw out that okay. So just earlier today, my my son um, was dying to see this new movie, It. Okay, and I don't usually watch too many scary movies, but he convinced me, and it was actually really good. Um, And it's all about fears arising, and it was funny because I was leaving there and soon after coming to talk to you, and it it got me thinking of, you know, um, the whole premise and this character in the movie, not to spoil it for anyone, but, you know, it's it's based off he's, you know, this clown is sort of uh, the, it feeds off fear and an expression of fears, and I was Mm -hmm. thinking, uh, you know, it got me thinking when, during the movie when they were making that point about my own sort of psychedelic journeys and how a lot of times for me it's uh, things have come up to, uh, you know, how to overcome fears uh, in, in that psychedelic sort of state, in that altered state. Mm-hmm. And then I thought of one of my favorite all-time quotes that I probably read 10 times on my show by your brother uh, that's all about, uh, you know, facing your fear. So, uh, you know, I, I want to take a quick moment and read that because it just seems appropriate and I love it and I read it fairly regularly because I love it so. But uh, okay. Terrence said, nature... L- Nature loves courage. You make the commitment, and nature will respond to that commitment by removing impossible obstacles. Dream the impossible dream, and the world will not grind you under. It will lift you up. This is the trick. This is what all these teachers and philosophers who really counted, who really touched the alchemical gold, this is what they understood. This is the shamanic dance in the waterfall. This is how magic is done, by hurling yourself into the abyss and Discovering it's a feather bed. Uh-huh. Such a yeah. beautiful quote. I just love it. And, you know, it, it just kind of all tied together for me as I was heading to talk to him. Like, oh, this is all about fears. That's one of my favorite quotes. I should just read it and and ask you, is that something that, have you seen that? I mean, is that something that's personal to my own experiences? And it hasn't always been, but is that something that has come up for you or in a lot of people that you've talked to, obviously talked to a lot more people about their psychedelic you know, experiences than I have, where it's like a processing of fears and overcoming fears in the, the, these altered states? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think so. As I said, as I said before, you know uh, the thing, the the quintessential thing about psychedelics is that uh, you know uh, it does not require faith. You don't have to have 
a belief system to make it work. In fact, it's almost better if you don't. It's what it does require yeah. is courage. You know, courage right. to sit and take the medicine, drink the cup, smoke the pipe, whatever it is you're doing. And yep. it it requires that you have enough confidence in yourself that you can take this, you're up to it. And anybody who doesn't have butterflies in the stomach or a little bit of trepidation before they go into one of these deep psychedelic states is not paying attention. You know, right? For they're sure. not paying attention. But that said, you can have that trepidation, and if you just say, "Well, I am, I can take this," you know, and whatever comes, right. just let it come. I mean, people get into yep. trouble because they don't. Uh, you know, in ayahuasca circles, we have a saying: "Trust the medicine," and mm. that's part of it. But also, trust yourself. You have to believe that you have the chops to have these experiences and uh, you know and the and the, the the medicine will honor that in a certain sense so yeah. i think courage is a big part of it courage to do it yeah. and then the courage to uh, you know to make of it what you will to to put your own unique perspective on it and your own uh, interpretation, which is not like anyone else's in the world, right? So uh, there are many, you can read about other people's experiences, you can read about what they think it's all about, and that's all valuable stuff. At the end of the day, the rubber meets the road between you and the medicine, and that's right. what's so valuable about it. You know, right. no one can synthesize this experience for you, you have to have it yourself. That's the right. that's the key thing. No, it's it, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and and it's you know as far as holding the space to for these experiences, as, as we mentioned, you do journeys to South America, uh, yes. you know ayahuasca retreats. And if someone was interested in in that, it, is this something that anyone can get involved with? And if so, how would they go about connecting with? Well, you the first thing they do if if they want to come to my retreats. Uh, Go to Symbio Life Sciences, S-Y-M-B-I-O, Life Sciences. Go to the website, click on Events, and then you'll go to the page where you can register for one or another of the retreats coming up this January. And you can also look at some information that is there to give you an idea what what it's like. And we're, uh, we've been doing this for a while. We've been doing this regularly and a big part of it, I have to say, is are the people I'm privileged to work with. Uh, one of them is the shaman, Waira, just an amazing fellow on every level. A very good, skilled shaman, more importantly, a very decent human being. That's really right. important. He's humble. He doesn't have any ego tied up in this. And then our assistant and, and helper, Christina, who helps with the ceremonies and helps with every other aspect of organizing them. So if you go to uh, symbiolifesciences.com, all one word, slash events, then you'll get to the registration page. And we're, we emphasize a, a few things. Number one is safety. We insist on a fair a bit of preparation for people um, before they go into it. 
we want them to be assured that they're not in any physical danger. Uh, and mm-hmm. we, uh, uh, you know, encourage them to educate themselves. We, we have a medical screening form that is take no prisoners, uh, very detailed, and you have to get past that if you're going to come to our retreats. For most people, it's not it's not a challenge. I mean, most people can pass. You're right. Some people right. occasionally. I mean, like they, I get people who you know, I'm, they'll they'll email a whole list of psychopharmaceuticals that they're taking for this, that, yeah. or the other thing, and I basically say. You got to get off that stuff, you know, before we can yeah. accept you. And then when we right. do it, we we it's very structured, you know. We're very uh, much about creating the right environment so that we have three ceremonies. Each ceremony is uh, separated by a day, and the day after is for integration, sharing experiences, kind of group therapy, just processing, you know, what happened. So. The sequence of three sessions we find is very good because the first one kind of gets everybody into it. As, as Wyra says, the ayahuasca is in you, and then it stays in you for a long time. Even when you're not in sessions, right. it, it sticks around. And so the second session is where you know things really open up, usually. Some deep work can be done, and the third session is more integrative, you know, and that said, there's no hard and fast rule, you know, but, but this is right. how we approach it. And one reason that we that we do this, other than, I mean, it's a gig, I'll admit, I make money from it. Hopefully we're not mm-hmm. uh, charging people too much. Um, but, but more than that, um, it's just so rewarding for, for us, the, the three of us that organize this. To see what people go through, you know, I mean, some people, they just have transformative experiences and you just feel like, you know, it's not that really done good. We don't take all we take credit for is to organize the event. And we're very much about, you know, once they're in a place, we're very much about stepping back and let them. Uh, you know, let them have their own experience in this personal way. I mean, that's what I like so much about Waira, the shaman is. The yeah. first thing he'll say is, I'm not a shaman. Okay, that's yeah. what I was hoping to hear. <laughs> right? right, right, right. There's no ego in it. And he says, you know, yep. the, the mushroom is the shaman, the mushroom, or the, sorry, the ayahuasca or the mushroom. But, right. you know, it's the medicine right. is the teacher. Uh and and uh, and people have really uh, incredible experiences that are that are meaningful, and they feel like it, it it helps them. Some people come because they're just interested in spiritual exploration or spiritual development. Other people have specific issues, depression or you know trauma, right. different things. We're not saying we're not treating any of this. It's not. It's not that structured. We we believe the healing comes spontaneously. Um, all we do is create a, an opportunity for Container. that to happen in a way that's safe and supportive and uh, beautiful. Yeah, very very wonderful. Uh, I'm I'm sure there will be some people out there that are interested in that. Uh, I've certainly had people connect. You know, contact me before. 
seeking guidance. Well, tell them uh, to uh, feel called. free. Feel free to to look at the website. Uh, we still have a few spots open in both sections, so there's room at this point. Uh, but I imagine they will Excellent. fill. They usually do. Excellent, excellent. Well, I'd like, uh, you know, we're getting getting down to it here in our time, but one of the things that I always love to go to, uh, I love a good story of synchronicity or serendipity or a positive paranormal story, if you will, and curious uh, if you have anything good like that to share. Well, uh, not that I can tell succinctly. Um, I mean, you can read, uh, you know, True hallucinations or the Brotherhood, and there's uh, all sorts of anomalous phenomena. Um, 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 but I, I can't tell one story that might not seem that far out, but it, in a certain way, to me, it, it kind of exemplifies uh, ayahuasca and the reality mm-hmm. of the of. Uh, of the ayahuasca universe, if you want to put it that way, for the people that for whom it's just part of their lives. It's just a part of daily life. And their lives are very different than ours. And they're dreamlike in some ways. And one of the stories I like to tell is uh, I was with uh, my friend Luis Eduardo Luna, who's a shaman and an anthropologist. We were traveling in uh, Pucallpa in 1985, and uh, it was in that year that uh, I introduced Eduardo to Pablo Marmaringo, the the visionary uh, painter uh, who wrote who who whose paintings he wrote a book about called Ayahuasca Visions. But mm. that year we were nobody. We were, you know, Pablo Amaringo was just this amateur painter that lived in a village, and and Eduardo and I had gone to Pucallpa to uh, meet and drink ayahuasca with Don Fidel, who was kind of a legendary fellow even at the time, and and we, uh, you know, we were there to see him and and experience that, and. Uh, uh, so we'd been there some days, and uh, and one night we decided, or or Don Fidel suggested that instead of doing it at his house for ceremony, we go over to his uncle's house, which was at a different across the village, some miles away. Mm-hmm. So we went over to this to his uncle's house, and we did ayahuasca. We did the ceremony. He had an adobe house, which was unusual uh, for that area. Most of them are wooden and on stilts and that sort of thing. But this was Adobe House. We did the, we did the brew. Uh, it was not particularly strong in me, uh, but strong enough. And, uh, and toward the end of that time, about three in the morning, I, I went outside to have a cigarette and just sort of collect my thoughts. I was pretty much done with the uh, with the mariation as they call it i was not really stoned anymore and it was a full right. moon night and i was looking just enjoying the evening and i was looking at the moon uh shining through some branches and leaves of a tree and casting a shadow on the wall 
and uh, the and the shadow was just as clear as anything. It appeared to be uh, an image of a young girl with a veil and her over her head and her hands folded in prayer. Right, mm. and this was a very strong impression. The pattern that these shadows made. So strong, in fact, that I went back inside and I told Eduardo, "You got to come out here and look at this. This is this is. I'm either really loaded or this is this <laughs> going on, you know? Right. Right. And so he got up and he came out and he looked at it and we both agreed that it was a remarkable pattern, right? So wow, there was that, and we finished it and we went home. We didn't think too much about it. We got up the next morning, and we went into town to meet with uh, Pablo, whom we agreed we were going to see in the morning. And we uh, we met him, and he said, uh, you didn't hear, uh, he said, uh, Francisco, who was another friend of ours and, and Pablo's nephew, he said, uh, Francisco's uh, daughter, who was about four years old, uh died last night and oh, wow. uh, uh, she he said she had uh, diarrhea and it was it couldn't be stopped they went to the clinic they couldn't help they went to find Don Fidel for uh, treatment but he wasn't there he was over at his uncle's place drinking ayahuasca with us right so they couldn't find him and the little girl died and uh, wow that was a tragedy that happens all the time. It doesn't make it, you know, I mean, dysentery and that sort of thing, you know, many children die of diarrhea. But so that happens. So he said, well, uh, there'll be a reception for the little girl, kind of a wake, I guess you could say, at Francisco's house later tonight. So you have to come. So we went away. We came back about 6 o'clock in the in the evening and everyone was there dressed in their, their finest, you know, and I walked into the room and there was a crib, white crib laid out with the little girl in it, in a white dress with a white veil with her hands folded, looking wow. very peaceful. Looking wow. in fact exactly like the image I'd seen the previous night wow. at about the moment that she passed away. So I wow. was pretty blown away by that, even though it's, you know, so I thought, wow, this is synchronous for sure. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And they were looking for, for the man who was with you as well. They uh, were looking right? for Don Fidel. That's right. That's yeah. right. Wow. And it was, That's you know, incredible. I mean, it's not a flashy thing, but it's just, it was a rather amazing coincidence that you know and this 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 little girl when i saw her in this in this crib essentially uh, she was the exact image of what i'd seen on the wall so 
Ayahuasca es una medicina muy misteriosa, as they say. <laughs> Definitely. Wow, that is, uh, that is actually a pretty phenomenal story. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and connect and, and share uh, your wisdom and insight here on the show. This has been absolutely fascinating. I know I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm sure the uh, listeners have as well. Um, I do have one final question I'd like to leave you with, and uh, it's I always open with the same question, always close with the same question. Um, and in 60 seconds or less, I'm curious, what is the meaning of life according to Dennis McKenna? What is the meaning of life according to Dennis McKenna? Well, um, what I have learned from psychedelics is what we touched on earlier, which is they constantly remind us remind me of the limitations of my knowledge, right? And so the meaning of life, I think, is to be humble because you don't know shit, but also mm -hmm. be curious, you know? So you don't know shit, but you have everything to learn. And I happen to be a person who likes to learn things. So that's yeah. what it is for me is to try to understand as much about this marvelous world, this marvelous universe that we inhabit um, as possible. And at the same time, be comfortable and accept the idea that we're only, you know, we're only ever going to understand a small fraction of what there is to know, you know, whatever we right. think we know, it's much weirder and it's much more marvelous <laughs> than we can even imagine. So that to me is a is a good thing. That's a hopeful thing. You well, know? this has been weird in the most marvelous way. <laughs> uh, this conversation, Dennis. Thank you so much, my friend. You are an inspiration, right. and I look forward to connecting with you uh, in in real life one day. Who knows? Maybe I'll make it down to one of your retreats in South America. That would be wonderful. We'd love to see you. Thank you for inviting me. I had a great time. It's been a real pleasure, Dennis. Until next time, journey well, my friend. You too. Well, everyone, that concludes this week's interview episode. If you have enjoyed this positive download from our hearts and minds to yours, please take a minute, give us a rating or review on iTunes, since iTunes is the holy grail of all things podcasting. Uh, your good reviews help us to reach more listeners. Also, we would be extremely appreciative if you would tell your friends and family about the show. Our sincere intent with the Positive Head podcast is to spread positivity to the world because, well, because we're selfish, quite honestly. Uh, I say that jokingly, but really only halfway joking. I'm referring to the good kind of selfish based on the knowing that we all get what we give in this life because when we give, we're actually always giving to extensions of self since we're all really one in the same consciousness, just in different bodies. So if you want to be a good selfish along with us by helping to spread the positivity, by all means, please proceed to shout about the Positive Head podcast from your rooftop. <laughs> Otherwise... As you continue on your fabulous journey in this 3D reality, be sure to remember this. As long as you ain't dead, you're already positive ahead. Journey well, everyone, and thank you for being.